Of the four New Testament Gospels, the book of John is, well, it's different. Like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it presents a retelling of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But John is notably distinct in what it emphasizes, and what it includes, and what it leaves out, in the order and structure of its account, and in the image of Jesus it constructs. One of the early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, famously characterized the differences between the gospel narratives in this way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote down the bodily things, the physical facts, whereas John, who was encouraged by his pupils and irresistibly moved by the Spirit, wrote a spiritual gospel. In this teaching series, we'll explore John's distinctive spiritual gospel, and along the way, we will reacquaint ourselves with his overtly theological retelling of Jesus, the Word made flesh, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. This is the spiritual gospel. So as I was saying, for those of you that have been here, we have spent 40 some odd weeks in the Gospel of John. Uh, we are moving at quite, quite the pace here. And actually after this teaching, we're gonna take a little bit of a break for Advent. And then I believe we're gonna take a one month break in January as well. I got a couple things that I'd like to, to discuss with you guys. But we're gonna kind of put a, a bookend to this portion of scripture. This is in John chapter 13. We're going to close out this chapter, uh, which is a pretty decent breaking point as we head into chapters 14, 15, and 16. So this is John chapter 13, beginning in verse 31. It says, when Judas was gone, Jesus said, now the human one has been glorified. Other translations would say, now the son of man has been glorified, and God has been glorified in him. If God has been glorified in him, God will also glorify the human one in himself and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I'm with you for a little while longer. You will look for me, but just as I told the Jewish leaders, I also tell you now, where I'm going, you can't come. I give you a new commandment, love each other. Just as I have loved you, so you also must love each other. This is how everyone will know that you are my disciples when you love each other. Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I'm going, you can't follow me now, but you will follow me later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll give up my life for you. Jesus replied, will you give up your life for me? I assure you that you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. Word of God for the people of God. So this past week, I had gone to Facebook to see which portion of this text was uh, kind of hitting your heartstrings a bit. The two that really jump out to me are this, uh, this end note with Peter, who is always just, just right on the, the tip of his tongue to pledge his allegiance to Jesus. And then Jesus kind of brings him back a little bit to reality, because here he's saying that I'll go with you even to death, Jesus. Wherever you go, I will go. And Jesus, with those soft eyes and the soft communication like, will you? I wish that you could know this, Peter, but even before this, this day is over, you will have already denounced me in front of many people. The other part of this passage that, I, that, that sticks out to me is Jesus' commandment 
to loving each other. And that's really where I wanna focus our time tonight. And instead of trying to cram those two sermons on their own into one monster mega sermon, I've decided just to focus on the bit where we're called to love. But before we can understand that, we must remember the scene in which this teaching takes place. Remember last week we talked about the Roman triclinium, this, uh, this dinner setting where you have a long table at the front of the room and then you have two tables off to either side and at the front of the table where the people with the most status or importance or power will sit, we have Jesus flanked on either side by his beloved disciple. The one in the, in the Gospel of John that has no name that many scholars have tried to postulate and hypothesize who this individual is, but at least we know that this is the individual within the book who is the author of the book and who has this really close and intimate relationship with Jesus, so much so that Peter, who's not at the head table, kind of looks to this disciple, motions to him and says, hey, ask him who he's talking about. Who is the person that is going to betray him? And the beloved disciple as was modeled so beautifully by Brian Goad and Josh Hill last week. The beloved disciple puts his head on Jesus' chest and says, who is it going to be? On the other side of Jesus sits Judas, the one who would betray him, the one that we usually think is off in the corner of the room, conniving his way. But here in this version of the story, there's enough information there that leads us to believe that Judas is at a place of prominence that Judas is a trusted one. All throughout the Gospel of John, Judas is the one that holds the purse, and it's only after or in light of how the story pans out that they can look back and say that Judas was a thief who was always stealing. But even in this moment, as Judas leaves, the disciples around the table think that he's just gonna go and give money to the poor or go and get provisions for them for the meal of Passover for tomorrow. But they're sitting in this moment, and the text says that after Judas leaves, some commentators have said there's a moment in which Jesus has his closest people to him. Now Judas has left and he gathers them even closer. Scott and I coach a U8 soccer team and there's moments when we just need to gather those crazy six-year-old boys close to us to teach them what's what's going to happen in the game. Terrible analogy, my bad. But it's like Jesus is bringing his closest people in for a piece of, of teaching for them to understand what it is that's going to happen. Scholars have called this Jesus's farewell discourse. The one who betrays him leaves and he brings in his closest 11 or so to, to receive this teaching from Jesus. I want to show you this graphic just because I think it's important for us to see um, how much prominence this set of teaching has in the Gospel of John. We've already talked about the, the book of signs as the first half of the Gospel of John in chapters one through 12. This is the first three or so years of Jesus' ministry, all the miracles that he's doing in an attempt to get people to understand who he is, what his identity is, what his role is, what his relationship is with God the Father. And then it turns the corner and we have eight or nine chapters that are devoted to Jesus heading towards Jerusalem to die, to the cross and the empty tomb. As we've already seen, there's a handful of verses in the very beginning of the book of the Passion that are devoted to the foot washing where Jesus takes on the role of the servant. He disrobes in the middle of the meal so that he can do the acts of hospitality that a servant would do. Jesus takes on the lowest role in the room to provide a, a lesson for people in this moment, washing the feet 
of his disciples, which launches into a farewell discourse. Three chapters of Jesus just teaching his people. And in this this section, it is a deeply rooted theology leading his disciples to love each other and to love the world. In chapter 17, Jesus has this high priestly prayer for the unity of his people, that they would be one as Jesus and God and spirit is one. This takes a place of prominence in this section, at least in terms of how much uh, room is devoted to this last or final teaching of Jesus to his disciples. In chapters 18 and 19, uh, we have the, the crucifixion and then we have the, the resurrection and some of Jesus's uh, last engagement with his uh, disciples. But the book of the Passion, it can be broken down. We see a big stress here on the teaching that Jesus is going to give to his people and what this has uh, in its beginning here in these few verses at the end of chapter 13, Jesus is saying, hey guys, it's almost time. Everything that I've been telling you that you have no idea what I'm talking about, it's getting ready to happen. So in a little bit, I'm gonna have to leave you alone. This is why Peter comes back and says, where are you going? Why can't we come with you? Jesus is saying that, that my time has now come and the things that I'm about to do that you really don't understand are gonna force me to leave you but don't worry, he gets into this in chapters 14 and 15, don't worry because I'm going to give you an advocate, I'm going to give you the spirit, and it's better for you that I go than if I were to stay, but they can't really wrap their brains around that. He's saying it's almost time. The things that are laid out for me to do, I must do, so I must leave you in a little bit. You can't come with me, not yet anyway. It's not your time for that. You're gonna be on your own. And while you're here, while I'm gone, you've got work to do. Namely, I have a new commandment for you. He says to his people in the room, and this is the command. If you let yourselves just sit there for a moment and, and Jesus kind of like prods it out saying, I've got a new commandment for you. You might be thinking, oh, this is gonna be good. This is gonna be an original piece here. And then he says, love each other. What? We've heard, we've... We've heard that bit of teaching before, Jesus. This isn't uh, just a, a, a brand new commandment. It's got roots in the Old Testament and roots in some of Jesus' other teachings, as we'll see. But as one uh, commentator says, this is the simplest and clearest but hardest commandment of all, that we would love each other. Even if we focus on this room itself and the diverse relationships that we have in this room, we might find it difficult to love those that we don't get along with. We might find it difficult to love those that we don't have everything in common with. We might find it difficult to get along with those whose personalities clash with our own, but this is Jesus' teaching to his people, as anticlimactic as it might be, he says, love each other. And as they begin to think through this and what it means, they understand or begin to wrestle with the fact that this, as simple as it is, as clear as it is, is going to be one of the most difficult things that Jesus has ever asked of his followers. Now, as I mentioned, this isn't really a new command. If you go back into the Old Testament, Jesus isn't the first one to come up with love God with everything that you have, and he's not the first one to come up with love your neighbor as yourself. You can see here in Leviticus chapter 19, uh, some teaching in the beginning there, you must not take revenge nor hold a grudge against any of your people. Instead, you must love your neighbor as yourself. There's some discussions as to the, 
the scope of this in the Old Testament, who it is that we're supposed to love. Is it only our fellow countrymen or is it anyone and everyone? Who is our neighbor? Which occasions the question from the person that Jesus is, is talking to. In Mark chapter 12, uh, one of the legal experts hears about a, a dispute that's, that's being had between Jesus and some other religious leaders, and he sees how well Jesus is answering his, uh, his conversation partners. So he comes over and asks him, which commandment is the most important of all? This is a typical question that you would ask of a rabbi to see what sort of teaching that rabbi has for you, if it was going to be list after list and commandment after commandment, or if it was gonna be something a bit smaller and more condensed. And Jesus comes back and says, the most important one is this, Israel, listen, our God is the one Lord, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is going back to Deuteronomy chapter six, which is called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love him with everything that you've got. And the second is this, you will love your neighbor as yourself. The text that we just saw from Leviticus chapter 19. No other commandment is greater than these. Loving people is not new. It's not novel. It's not something that only Jesus was telling his people to do. It's deeply embedded within the Jewish religion. But what's new in the Gospel of John is the reference point, the way in which we love. Jesus says, just as I have loved you, so you also must love each other. This is very different from the Old Testament teaching, but now Jesus is giving them a framework saying, you've seen me do all of these things. Everything that you've seen me do, you go. You do. It's humbling, isn't it? That he's leaving the mission in our hands. He's leaving the mission in the hands of this group of 11 people, one of which has just cut it and run. Another one is gonna curse him out in front of a fire to a slave girl. Like He's got these people that aren't really there. In fact, in the Gospel of John, the only disciple that stays with him to the very end is the beloved disciple who's hanging out with a bunch of women at the cross. Everyone else is gone. And Jesus is saying to them, listen, I've given you this example. You go and you do. And whatever the world sees in you, it will reflect me. So when Jesus says, just as I have loved you, so now you must go and love, in your estimation, what has that love looked like in the Gospel of John up until this point. I'm asking for real participation here. I'm gonna say that again just so you can start getting those wheels turning. In the Gospel of John, what has it looked like for Jesus to love his people? How has he demonstrated that to both his inner circle and, and beyond? How has he shown his love to them up until this point? Serving. Serving, yes, I heard somebody mumbling. And it was correct. Washing their feet. Did it come from you? Look at you. So proud. That's my wife, everybody. I did, we did not plan this. I did not give her the answers beforehand. She's just smart. In the beginning of chapter 13, she's not going to talk ever again. In the beginning of chapter 13, yes, Jesus washes the feet of his disciples and then very specifically says, have you seen what just happened? Go and do this. Stop fighting about who's at the front of the table. Stop fighting about where you're gonna be after this is all over, but take on the position of a servant to love people well, 
Any other ideas as to what that has looked like in the gospel? Give me a little bit more on that, Hunter. Race, cultural bar barriers is what he's saying. He's, he's breaking down some of those. Um, he speaks to people who were outcasts of society. Absolutely. All throughout the gospel, not only the gospel of John, but we also see this in the synoptics as well, where Jesus is approaching people that don't really fit into the story. This is why the religious leaders hate him so much. One of the reasons, there's a handful as to why they do, but talking to women at the well, talking to Samaritans, talking to all these people that don't fit. Any other ideas that are right on the tip of your tongue? Doing some crazy uh, miracles, yeah, and not only that, but the types of miracles that he's doing is, in, in many senses of the term, restoring family units uh, or bringing uh, people back within community. It's not just cool party tricks for Jesus. It's actually a foretaste of what it should be like. It's a foretaste of restoration it's a foretaste of salvation and redemption. It's a foretaste of all the things that God is attempting to bring to earth here and now. Any other final thoughts? You guys have done good. I'm proud of you. Okay, we'll move on. And then Jesus says this. He says, this is how everyone will know that you are my disciples. Back up just for context. He says, just as I have loved you, all the serving, the things that I've done that have been completely outlandish, the, the, the ways that I have talked to the women on the edge and the outskirts of society, the way that I have brought family units back together, the way that I have uh, broken Sabbath laws, the way that I have fed people and ministered to people, the way that I have taken on the role of a servant, you need to do that. And if you do, this is how everyone will will know that you are my disciples because you will be loving each other. How are we, as the church, capital C, doing with this commandment? Bit of background, and as I'm giving some background, I'll let you guys get those wheels turning again. I'm very cynical. I'm pretty negative. When it comes to me thinking about the impact of the church, my usual inclination is to fall on the side of not good, respond, engage, affirm or deny. Can we get some clarification if you're talking about capital C church or TRP specifically? Capital C, we're the best. <laughs> Obviously, I mean, we do, we do all the right things. So we're talking about other people. That's what we're doing right now. I don't even know why you needed a clarification. Silly clarification. Um, if you want to throw us under the bus, by all means, we'd love to hear that. Uh, you know, public forum is as good as any. I might, you know, just get into a fetal position under the piano there, but we'll be okay. We'll get through that. How, how do you think that, that we Christians, capital C Christians, are doing with this command to love each other? Bad. Anybody want to add to that or take from it? I think it's easier for us to love each other, the people in this room. Absolutely. Than it is for us to reach out and, and love people who are different. Than and I'd even go one step farther, Vicki. I'd say it's, it's easy for us to love people in this room and it's not always that easy for us to love people at Emmanuel or Lyft or St. James AME. Yeah, exactly. A church less than five miles away that we might not even know exists. For some reason, church becomes a vortex 
and it's very easy for us to get into this, we're the best. We've got the best theology, the best music, the best graphics, whatever. Like, we don't need anybody else. And we kind of have those walls up. Eileen, you had something. Do you want to go with it or do you want to take it back? Yes, the problem is uh, most of us are caught in that individualized, Americanized, what's best for me moment. Uh, if, if you watch any sort of like news outlets, it's, it's very easy to become under the piano in the, in the fetal position, like what is going on in the world because we just have a constant stream of not even... Uh, made up negativity, but a constant stream of negativity that's out there in the world. Um, I think that you're on to something, Eileen. However, I would, I would also say that for most people, they aren't so quick to be that charitable to the church. Some of my former students in the room, welcome back. And this will be old material for you. This is a book that was published in... Uh, 2006, seven, eight, somewhere in there. It's, it's basically the results of surveys done with how people perceive Christianity and the church that are not a part of Christianity or the church. And they came up with six of the top uh, adjectives or descriptors to say what the church actually is. Any idea what some of those descriptors might be? Hypocrite. Hypocrite. That's the number one answer. If this was Family Feud, do you want to keep or do you want to pass to the other team? <laughs> nope. She's like, cut it out. They can go, which is a terrible strategy in the game of Family Feud, but we'll leave that alone. <coughs> judgmental, yes. Judgmental is at the bottom, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave the mystery there for a bit. What are some other things that describe the church? I'll go ahead and tell you. None of them are good of the top six. None of them are great. Exclusive. Yes, we're three for three. Nice job. What else? Stupid. That's harsh, Laura. Um, but I think I think we could we could massage that into one of these categories. Yes, uh, we could we could massage that. What do you got? Um, yes, we're gonna we're gonna link those two. Uh, Closed-minded. I'm gonna put with hypocritical, judgmental, that sort of stuff. Anything else that's Okay, we're, we're, we're going off the rails, and I think we're enjoying this too much, okay? Uh, but people say the top six, Christians are hypocritical. Christians only care about conversions. It's like that rogue street evangelism where you'll get a track. Or, I, I know, I, I led you guys astray with that. I said adjectives or descriptors, if you remember. Conversions uh, is neither. Okay, <laughs> whatever. If the, if the quotations go here, get out of here. You're riding high on that right answer, and now you think you got all of them, okay. Um, Christians are anti-gay. I imagine that was in people's minds. We didn't want to say it out loud, but it's pretty, pretty legit uh, from, a, from a, a larger scope of things. Now, you could, uh, you could parse that out as to see what this actually means and how that's enacted, but for the most part, I think we're on pretty good ground there. Christians are sheltered. That might be part of the lack of education or at least uh, 
not allowing people to go out to become educated or uh, allowing people to see what's going on in the world for fear that they might become the world. Mom, can I share a story real quick? She's gonna love this. (laughs) As a kid, I just wanted to play baseball. It's all I wanted to do was play baseball. And in hindsight, I don't know if mom wouldn't let me play baseball because I was so bad at it. Like, Erica would pitch me the ball and I was just like, swing and a miss, swing and a miss, swing and a miss. And then I'd get so mad and I'd chuck the bat start kicking stuff and whatever. One time, Erica, Erica struck me out, so I just went, dropped my bat, went to the mound and like bit her. Uh, that was the only time I was spanked as a child, but you know. But it wasn't until I was 10 years old that mom let me sign up for Laurel Little League. And I think that at least some of the reason and rationality was, well, if little, little Joshy, you know, my, my sweet baby, if he as an eight or nine-year-old goes to hang out with these you know, crazy kids at Laurel Little League, he'll be smoking cigarettes and uh, whatever. And, and, and little did she know that wasn't until three years later when I got kicked off the basketball team for smoking cigarettes. And that was at my private Christian school. That was at a youth group trip, people. Witness. <clears throat> yep. Uh, some people would say that Christians are too political. We see this and we would say that if this is true, it's, it's, it's very one-sided in how that political alliance comes to, to fruition. And then finally, Christians are judgmental. Now this, again, this is a little bit dated, maybe 10 years ago or so, and this is coming from people outside of the church and how they're attempting to define or characterize the church. And some of these uh, descriptions here, I think that we can resonate with them, see where they might come from, hope for something better, but also understand that for people just on the outside looking in with all of the cultural influences that they have, the stereotypes of Christianity that are all throughout the, the United States to see that this is, is maybe uh, part of, of who we are. A few years after that, there was another book called You Lost Me, which is not surveying people outside of the church, but it's surveying people within the church who have left the church. I forget the age demographics, but it might be 18 to 29. It's supposedly young people that have been inside of the church that have now left the church, and they're attempting to to survey people to see why it is that they have left. And I'm not gonna get you to guess. Uh, I'm just gonna tell you. They would say that um, they felt like they had been overprotected. Some of that sheltering that, that comes comes out even within the walls of the church. They also say that there's a shallowness in life and worship, that there uh, is, is a, a fear of science. And really, you can tell that the underlying implication of that is creation evolution, how to reconcile the Bible and the stories that it has and the way that it tells them with most uh, majority scientific claims and the church not wanting to engage. And again, this might be a little bit dated. Uh, The church is afraid of sex, or at least not up to date. And I don't want you to think about um, maneuvers and things. <laughs> no, that's fair. That's really fair. That, yep. First time guest. It was fun introducing myself. We probably won't see you again. Uh, Godspeed. Uh, the church is afraid of conversations about sex. It's not something that usually takes place in forums like this, and it's certainly not, you know, usual when people are talking about maneuvers. Um, the church is exclusive or intolerant. Kate, my wife, has this sweatshirt, and whenever she gets embarrassed, she goes into the sweatshirt. (laughs) Much like the turtle in the animated version of Robin Hood, 
and she is totally in there. Okay, so the church is also afraid of doubt, according to people within the church that have left the church that now find a, a lack of um, rooting in what they might want their community to be. They're not able to or willing to talk to them about science or sex or allow them to have questions. I've heard from a lot of people, both in coffee conversations and people within this room right now, that would say things like, whenever I had questions about the faith, I didn't feel as though I could ask my pastors those questions for fear of how they would look at me, for fear of judgment of what they might think about me for not taking the Bible at its word. And this has led some people to leave the church, which begs the question, do they really know us by our love? I am hopeful. I told you that I, I tend to be more negative and cynical. I'm hopeful that the people in this room right now, that you've had relationships and encounters with Christian people that give you hope that allow you to see that it's not all like that, even if there are some hooks in reality for those uh, 12 descriptions of the church, either from people outside or inside the church. I'm hopeful that you have some people around you that will claim faith in Jesus and want to follow Jesus, that you know also love you deeply and would care for you when the stuff hits the fan in your life. But at a larger level, are we doing this? Let's ask some folks. We can ask the LGBTQ community. We can ask ethnic minorities. We can ask the immigrant community. We can ask people at the center of these debates that we have where we very carelessly and callously put them as hypothetical situations without knowing their names or uh, what it is that they're going through. They just become political ideologies that we either are for or against. We could talk about people sitting across the political aisle, and this is not just Democrats having a hard time talking to their Republican family members at Thanksgiving, although that might be some of your story in the next few days. It also is very much on the opposite spectrum, where we have people and across the political aisles, they cannot see eye to eye, and it's difficult for them to love one another in the midst of what they're going through. It's people with different theologies that don't think the things that you do about God, about the Bible, about faith. It's people uh, that are poor or the marginalized, the oppressed. It's the widows and the orphans. We can ask all these people. It's folks with poor legal representation that we might not even think about on most days. It's people that are in prison, same sort of scenario there. It's people that are living under persecution, whether that's here or elsewhere. Side note, the person at Target not saying Merry Christmas to you is not persecution. That is not your cross to bear. It might be nice and it might be your preferred interaction and you might think that you're really sticking it to the man when you say, happy holidays, Merry Christmas to you. But beyond that, there's people that are suffering real persecutions where their lives are on the line. There's people that are living in fear. There's people living with guilt and shame that is brought on by us and the theologies that we peddle in rooms like this. There's people living without hope. Let's ask them if we love or if we even care. We can look at stats. We can read books. 
when it comes down to it, how are we as a community engaged in the lives of these people? I do want us to see that the context of the command, for some folks, they say it's just within the room here. It's just for fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, all of which are represented on that list that I just put on the screen, mind you. But the context of the command is is more at home where Jesus is saying, you guys got to love each other. You have to know how to engage and get along with one another and encourage one another because the work that we have to do is hard. I don't think that what Jesus was uh, bringing to mind in this moment was we've got a liberal church over here and we've got an uber conservative church over here and you guys need to learn how to work that out. He's not saying that in this moment, but he is saying that Christians need to get along together and love each other. One scholar says, in commanding the disciples to love one another, Jesus does not envision a love that shrinks from risk, rejection, and suffering, or that is limited only to each other. Love for one another, even if it is confined to this space or to fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, love for one another, it impels love for the world. You can't just love Christians. If we do, we're missing the call. That love for each other must impel us to go beyond and outside the walls that we have constructed. N.T. Wright says, as we read verse 35, we are bound to cringe with shame at the way in which professing Christians have treated each other down through the years. We have turned the gospel into a weapon for our own various cultures. We have hit each other over the head with it, burnt each other at the stake with it. We have defined one another so tightly that it means only love the people who reinforce your own sense of who you are. Jesus says, love each other just as I have loved you, as I have taken on the mantle of a servant as I have served you and cared for you and been present for you, as I have reached out to people on the margins of society and on the outskirts, and I've invited them in, the people that religious leaders cast out to the sides, I have fought for them, I have advocated for them, I have wanted to bring them in, do that. Love each other in that sort of a way, but as N.T. Wright correctly says, we have defined that so tightly that it really in practice only means that we love people that look like us, think like us, act like us, because that's where we feel safe. And that, friends, is at the complete antithesis of the gospel. Get a bigger Jesus because he's imploring us to go beyond the walls. And TRP, this does not get you off the hook. It's easy for us to say, we're progressive, we're hip. We got it all figured out. We we drink beer and sing hymns. Forget that, pause. What are you forgetting? Who are you forgetting? What communities are you forgetting? Because when we do that, it sounds like what we're forgetting is the journey that we're on and how we might be at a different place, but that does not mean that these are no longer brothers and sisters in Christ. Why don't we be the charitable ones who know how to love and love beyond our own walls? So instead of us picking little battles with folks that might not do faith like we do, maybe we can serve. Maybe we can remind people what Jesus has called us into. 
I don't want to belabor the point, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go into these, but I do think that it's important for us to 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 bring some semblance of closure to what we're talking about. Jesus says, "This is how everyone will know that you are my, my disciples when you love each other," and it starts within the house, and then that. That love within the house impels you to go beyond the house, but we need to get practical about this. And I've got three different issues that I don't have the time to develop. Maybe we'll come back to it, but I just wanna, I wanna leave you with it. Because we can't just say, love, go, be blessed. Because that is hard. Do I need you to do that foot pump again? It is hard <laughs> to do that. What does it mean for us to love those that we disagree with? And what does it mean to love those that have a potentially damaging theology? It can't just be let's hold hands and sing kumbaya with one another and pretend that those real differences don't exist, but what does it look like for us to love our Christian brothers and sisters who are oppressing people, who are maybe hurting people, who are presenting an image of the gospel that just isn't as full as it could be? How do we love people in war-torn countries? How do we love people who are on death row? How do we love families who have suffered injustice? Or how do we love people who face seemingly insurmountable obstacles? So in this small group that we've had the last three Thursdays, we're basically talking about a man who is Harvard-educated, has put that on the shelf, has moved down to Alabama to become a, a, a defense attorney for people on death row, some of whom are on there for up to 30 years, wrongfully convicted. And when you leave those discussions, you think, that's huge. The only thing that I can do is to stop being a pastor, go to law school, move to Alabama, and start advocating for people on death row. And you think, well, that's not practical. I've got a family and I've got small kids. How do we engage? How do we love people in these moments that are so big and vast that can be so depressing when we think about it? And finally, how do we love people that have hurt us? It's personal. It's not just these petty differences between churches. It's not these big ideas, the, the things like that people are trying to repair in a global sense, but it's, it's a real hurt that you harbor. You can't get past it. How do we love those who have hurt us? It's the simplest, clearest, and hardest command of all. I don't have the answers for you this evening. I want you to know that we're aware of the complexities. I want you to know that I understand and you understand when I, when I say just as Jesus has done, live that out. But I would encourage you to wrestle with that. Maybe to catch ourselves when we're talking in the coffee shop, Scott. Maybe to have moments when you have these, these, these realities that come up and you say, I'm not gonna go down this path because it's not loving and it's not helpful and it's not edifying. Maybe you can begin to do some real self-work where you focus on the hurts that you have and you surround yourself with people that can build you up and help you understand what does it mean to love. Maybe it can be 40 people in a room that say, let's take on some of the big things. If they're in Wicomico County, or if they're in Salisbury, or if they're in the world, maybe we can become aware of that because if we're aware of that, we might not get stuck on all of the petty things that hang us up. Perhaps, though, at the core of it, what, what I'm wanting us to do is to understand that when Jesus says, just as I have loved you, so you too need to love others, that he's asking you to buy in and to begin the work.
that will, according to him, show the world who he is and how good he is. Don't leave this place with guilt, but leave this place challenged to take moments of self-assessment and to begin to love each other well. Thanks for listening to this week's teaching from the Restoration Project. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to join us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. If you'd like more information on TRP, please visit our website at www.restoresby.org. And for previous sermons, check out our SoundCloud page at www.soundcloud.com forward slash restoresby or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. See you next week.